Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape from the penthouse of a partially completed commercial high-rise in glamorous Hollywood adjacent California. From the studios of Sirius XM West, boasting an obstructed view of one of LA's leading cement factories, this is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, the front man of the UK rock band Travis to mark the 20th anniversary of their album, The Man Who. Travis has released an expanded deluxe version of that landmark album, as well as a live recording of their celebrated live set at Glastonbury 99. Hello and welcome, Fran Healy. Hi. Thanks for coming by. You didn't have headphones on, so you didn't hear. It sounds I, I, particularly I, dumb when you can't hear the music in the background. It Trust did, me, it was magnificent. Yeah, it did sound pretty impressive, Thank even you. without headphones. Thank you. I'm glad you could, I'm glad you could feel that. I like how you could turn. You can turn it on the the the, the thing. Oh, it's amazing. Wow, I've never been. I don't know if I've been accused of having a persona before. You I kind of like that. You have to, you have to um, amp up a little bit when you go on air. You do you feel like you have developed a? Is there a Fran Healy that you play? Cute. Very good question. I was just talking to someone about it and listening to this album, this live record from Glastonbury in mm-hmm. 1999, I noticed that my voice is different. Mm-hmm. My speaking voice is different. And I hadn't yet. I'd found my singing voice, which takes a long time. It takes about seven years for anyone, I think, unless you're really, really intensively doing it. It takes around about seven years to find your singing voice. So I'd already, I'd found that, mm. but my, my onstage speaking voice, by the sounds of this, um, this, this uh, record, I hadn't quite found it yet. Do you, are you aware of the, the pieces that went into making your singing voice? I think most people feel like there's usually two or three voices that you try to imitate and then along the way to aping them in, in succession and finding your own thing inside, you become a combination of those. <laughs> yeah. Or you, or you, you, you have them all, and and somewhere in the middle of it, mm-hmm. your real one is forming, and then you, you, it's like a cocoon or something, and you you emerge hopefully from it, yeah, as the the singer that you're going to be. You wouldn't have liked my Brett Anderson face. Oh my god! Oh, I, well, so <laughs> mine was there was a little bit of John Lennon, mm. sure, sort of screaminess of John Lennon, Natalie Merchant from Ten Thousand Maniacs. Didn't expect you to say that. I had a bit of her. In there for a little while because that was quite a uh, it made quite an impression on me in my tribe that album when I was twelve and hmm, who else I can't remember but, but it's it's it was yeah. eventually the 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 sort of the dead skin falls off the side and you're you're left with the voice that you've got but to go back to what we're saying about the amping up mm-hmm. actually as I sort of played more live shows after this pr- performance and you get into you suddenly a big band and you're really you're really playing big audiences i actually dialed my on stage persona back i felt i didn't need to so i i kind of talk very normally on stage and i found that that reflected the songs and the, the 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 vibe of the songs much better yeah well and i think a lot of people say this is in music this isn't you know stand-up comedy or whatever that you you put on these personas and ultimately what you're doing is allowing your you, you finally gain the confidence to just be yourself, yourself. right yeah so 
speaking of Glastonbury and this whole era that you're revisiting with this reissue, so your first album sold, if I'm not mistaken, 40,000 albums, yeah. thereabouts. And then the second one, I did some homework for this. Mm-hmm. In a population of 60 million people in the United Kingdom, you sold 2.7 million albums there alone, I'm led to believe. Mm-hmm. Which is to say, everybody. Yeah. Like every third household. Now, I, I lived in England for right. 99, 2000. Oh so goodness, I was there for- there when that happened? I, I went to the, the Millennium Dome and everything. It was a crazy time. Yeah. And I was there when that happened. And wow. you just, it was utterly ubiquitous. Yeah. And I- Too ubiquitous, I think. You do, know, you, was, do you? Well, again- because we're having to sort of talk about this and go back and look at it and 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 sort of in a very nice neutral way now, and um, one of the things that I like about our career in America is that that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. We were still everyone's little secret. Like yeah. the, the, everyone who discovered us in America got to keep us mm-hmm. in Britain, but by the end of that year, one in six or three or whatever households had that album Mm -hmm. and everybody's like going and so for all the people that love it there's you know just as many that really hate it oh because yeah because the backlash and also because of the overexposure of it Mm. yeah so it's um um so i kind of like it here in america some somehow that are are, we, we never we always remained in this nice little zone. Yeah, well, I guess you kind of get to have the best of both worlds because a lot of the bands that stay in that nice little zone um, are, you know, s- still working at pet shops during the day. Yes. So success also has its benefits. <laughs> I also couldn't help but wonder what it must feel like to be, I'm sure you identify more as being Scottish than as being like from English, obviously, or being from the UK or anything, but uh-huh. these songs become the fabric of people's lives. Anybody who was alive then, I, I know without asking people's yeah. weddings, people's school yeah. graduations, they come up. How wonderful it must feel at the end of the day to know that you've made something that's resonated with like all of your people. Yeah. Like in a, in a, in a real way. How How do you... How does it feel to, do you feel like you made these songs you brought to people that you were like a conduit for or something? Because <laughs> Bill Withers is the person I think of where they're like, your songs are like, children sing these songs. Yeah, they're it's like, like nursery rhyme They're kind of like so in, in, it's sewn into the fabric of. And you yeah. go to a kindergarten graduation, yeah. you're like, I, I made that. How does yeah. that feel? Well, um, it kind of feels fun. It's kind of, back in the day before we got a record deal, and we'd ever go to like out to nightclubs in Glasgow. There would always be a moment of the night because it's so loud. I would stand up and I'd have my mates around me who were all you know, like support the band <clears throat> quite a lot. I would stand up and at the top of my voice, I would I would shout, "You will all buy my records!" Oh, so but, you did aspire to this? No, but but it was the joke. Like, oh. I was I was I was being funny and, and, and sort of tongue in cheek and and you know, be careful what you wish for mm. type of thing. Because, you know, suddenly and yeah, it is uh, a really cool thing because these songs you sit in the end of your bed strumming away and out comes a song and you put it on a record and then people get married to it, people are give birth to it people it's just this thing um the funny thing is i've always felt like you're a 
you're just when you were talking about conduit i always think of my job in a band i've never thought i'm like the rolling stones or something like that side of rock and roll i felt more like utilitarian because you've got this song that's really nice so you deliver it to people you come on a stage and you're like here you go or you goes on the radio and people hear it and it gives them something to smile about for three minutes and forget Mm -hmm. about something for three minutes so i always felt like a postman more than anything Mm -hmm. and i didn't really i always felt a little bit like on stage that's what i was there to do i wasn't i never i've never felt you know like when you play in front of like i don't know seventy thousand people at glastonbury like oh give me it never ever felt like that feeling of uh i don't think i've ever needed that type of validation no thank goodness yeah things some people to, do but it doesn't seem to end too well for most of the people who yeah, do that's if true. that's the drug that you're chasing your entire life congratulations i guess if you get it yeah some people do and it's like a real mess yeah yeah no I, i'm sure you've i'm sure you've met some of those people i was at glastonbury 2000 which you also we headlined it i don't we headlined the pyramid stage that year the was year that, before it was yeah. the one that we're releasing. Sure, yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Within a year, we were headlining the entire festival on a Saturday night. Like it's the biggest, it's the biggest slot of the mm-hmm. whole thing. And from being completely um, obscure to being completely ubiquitous yeah. within 365 days, it's kind of weird. And it's it's kind of shows you how it's kind of facile the whole business really is, and if it can switch that quickly. Yeah. Did you find yourself uh, very quickly, like, rubbing shoulders? Like, do you just wake up a, a week later after, you know, I forget the first song single was that hits if it was Turn or Why Does It Always Rain On Me? And, and just all of a sudden you're just on a TV show with Danny Minogue? Like, kind of this happened to me? I There was one little moment where I was sort of analyzing it and wondering how, wow, you know, here I am. I just met David Bowie or something. It's some CGQ, sorry, um, thing. <clears throat> and... You're legitimately, you're not, there's no question. It's like, you're one of, you're one of them. Mm -hmm. You're, you're part of the thing now, especially in Britain, because it's such a, it's an island. It's a tiny place. You know, it's kind of, everyone's living on the same street almost, you know, there's Paul down, you know, Paul McCartney, there's, there's David going to get his milk in the morning. And you're, you're part of this, you, you're part of neighborhood now and you're welcomed by the, the, the elders and mm-hmm. there's a lot of that and it's kind of it's kind of cool good there's no there's no uh reticence from anyone you're, you're just welcomed in and and um and it's 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 that's hugely flattering because and then you don't like especially when you meet people like mccartney or bowie or elton or the big guys they're just like the most normal yeah, you you expect to look down and see a pair of slippers, mm-hmm. right? They're, yeah, they're that cool and not you know they're not um, fancy in any way. It was my experience. I was around Elton John very briefly one time, and I missed him. There were a bunch of people who would have been like loading amps and setting up cameras and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. he was sitting in the middle of them talking to everybody. And I swear to God, it was because I he his back was to me. I didn't even realize I'd been looking at him for half an hour because he was just sitting there. BSing with people. It's so impressive. And of all the people, everyone else puts this thing on stars and fame and, you know, they're not like us or whatever. David Bowie and Paul McCartney, out of everyone would understand, they too had to pick up a guitar and write some bad songs and then eventually come around to some good ones. So they're the only ones who understand that it is actually a mortal occupation. Yeah. 
you know one of one of the oldest oldest in in history maybe you go back to the really 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 old days the, the those people people the performers and the jesters and the the the, the, the sort of they were the the would you call it the the Profity people, you know, they would be the the weird mag- magician type people. They were like the, circus folk. Yeah, and they they were like the coal miners' canary almost for mm-hmm. for for ancient and song and singing and divining and all that stuff is is um it's ancient, it's ancient, and 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 to be one or to be to be in that tradition is um is total, it's, it's great. It's like wow, it's a pure, it's a real vocation. It is in it the is. biggest sense. I'm always curious to know when somebody writes like the song that's the breakthrough, did you know? And I think very often they'll say, you know, oh, the second I played it or the second time we rehearsed it <laughs> or we sped it up. And But in, in this case, you'd had most of the singles from that album written when you released the preceding album. Is that so? Uh, some of them, Writing to Reach You was mm-hmm. written. Um, Turn was written. Why Does It Always Rain Me wasn't written. Driftwood wasn't written. So there was maybe two songs out of the of, of the that were written. How on earth did those get left off the album? The, the first album, yeah. We well, writing to reach you, we couldn't play it because it was too complicated. Oh, we were just like, you can. It's weird because you can write a song that's just not. It's too complicated to play because the parts are. I wanted it to do a certain thing, and it just didn't work. You tried <laughs> to record it, and it just wasn't congealing. I found the tapes of that recently, mm-hmm. and actually, it sounded pretty good. But it, but it just didn't feel right, and um, turn we hadn't even consider it. Um, so yeah, yeah, but but songs like Why Is It Always Raining Me and 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 Driftwood was was a late comer. Mm-hmm. Rain was like written a little bit before it, um, and written just because I was on holiday and it was raining and I just had enough. Yeah, like whatever I go on holiday. That's why it's raining in California just now. It's because I'm here. <laughs> I wanted to. I, I meant to, to apologize oh, to you for the God. weather. No, it's it's me. I said to my friend, if I move here, it's going to be torrential rain. She's like, ha ha. And I'm like, look. Right. Oh. <laughs> so that's an essential part of the, the legend is, right, you're playing at Glastonbury 99 and it literally starts to rain while you're. And it was a lovely sunny day. That'll happen there. Yeah. You never know. Yeah. You always have to out. pack a parka. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And some wellies. And it's so interesting to me, even having lived there, I still don't totally get it. This is a thing that's still possible there. You can play Glastonbury and it can be a star-making thing. I think it had happened for Pulp maybe three or four years. Like, how does that even... I mean, yes, mm-hmm. there's 200,000 people there, but it's still a fraction of the, the nation. So here's what happens. I think I know what happens. Mm-hmm. So you know the tipping point, right? The, the, yes, the, the tipping point in inverted commas. Um, so for 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 bands, I would say, or for anything, that moment is, I think, when say about fifty thousand people, not a lot, all just turn at once and look over in your general direction, not directly at you, but just like, and then you catch their eye, and you catch their eye for maybe three minutes, and it's not a long time, because that performance that that we've put out on the vinyl just now yeah this was the pivotal they say this this is pivotal performance in travis's career um and i agree but i listened to it and i'm like where did where where is that tipping point where is the where is the pivot and where's the little tip of the triangle that it was the whole career is balancing on and i couldn't for the life of me 
pinpoint it. But then I thought it wasn't the performance. It what went? It happened that evening when we got back from Glastonbury because we walked off stage and we're like, that was duff, that was rubbish. Go on a bus, didn't even stay. That was how bad we thought it was. We just left with our heads hanging low. And I got back home about ten thirty, ten forty-five. Put my bags down, switched on TV, turned to go and sit in the sofa. And as I was walking to the sofa, I heard my name come out of the television. Hmm. And I've never, never, when do you ever hear your name on, on BBC? It's British TV. It's like, what? And I turned around and there was two of the presenters sitting around a campfire at Glastonbury. And they were just raving about our performance that day. Going, Travis, Travis, Travis. And, and Fran Healy, Fran Healy. And I was standing kind of like with my mouth open watching this going, What's going on here? And then the Joe Wiley, which is one of the presenters, she's like, sure. let's have a look. Let's have a look at that performance. And I think that was the moment because all people are sitting in their houses and the people there kind of saw it uh, at, the, at that day. But th- that moment, I think enough people saw it in their living rooms. Mm-hmm. The living room, the power of the living room, your president is in power because of the power of the living room. Right. That's it's so powerful. What's his name? Bill Mayer said the other yeah, day the that Mar, Oprah right. Mar, mm-hmm. Oprah Winfrey should be that she's the only one that can beat Trump because of the living room. Well, and even then, so I'm living in England. Then you have five channels. Most yeah. people, I didn't have cable. Even if you yeah. did, that only got you up to like thirteen. Cable. Yeah, yeah. So everyone's watching that moment for three minutes. Yeah, and it was really good. I don't know what song they played. Whether it was, might have not even been a song from. It might have actually don't know. Maybe it was Rain or All I Want to Do Is Rock. But something about it was just great. It's on YouTube. You can see the performance. And I mean, I've seen it, and I'm like, wow, we're a a good little band (laughs) and loose but tight. Yeah, and just so confident, but but not. And it's not an act like. Over here, I've noticed something as a as an Auslander. Please let us have it. That you guys and it, and it's spread across. It's spread. It's spread worldwide now. You're good at acting confident, right? Mm. You know how to act confident, and that's really it's like quite an alluring talent because it's like yeah, I've seen people. They're so confident. Like if you watch um, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, they're not willing to say the wrong answer. They'll just confidently say an absolutely weird, nothing to do with the question answer, but they're so confident. Mm. It's like, but it's an act. Real confidence is this unspoken, really, and and looking at that performance, and I, I'm like, whoa, it took me by surprise. Like, it's there's a there's real confidence. We weren't acting confident. It was just this, we played. F- probably 450 shows yeah and this was the 451st yeah and it was just pure um effortless and p- pure confidence it's funny that you point to that because it's i mean confidence is so often mistaken uh, mixed up with arrogance you know you think about oasis coming along not that long after actually no i'm sorry before you and 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 there there's 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 one look of confidence. I actually felt that one of the things that was appealing to people yeah. about your band was that 
um, unassuming doesn't mean that you lack confidence, yeah. but again, words that sort of tend to go together. But it's like there's arrogance, there's mm-hmm. the act of confidence, and there's real confidence. Like arrogance, like Oasis were confident. Mm. They weren't acting confident either. Um, we toured with them. They're really confident people. They're just like, this is, I think confidence is, I am me. I'm not going to try and be, I'm not amping anything up here. I'm just going to be who I am. This is my band and you can take it or leave it. That That's real confidence. Not this kind of, I'm really, <laughs> I'm, I'm the best, I'm the greatest or whatever. Um, yeah. And it seems to be a sort of like, I don't know, a thing that I've I've noticed over here. Is like just even in uh, going into shops or just basic stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's like a, it's almost like a, a, a nervous tick. And, and Britain has it. Everywhere's got it. Because it didn't used to be that way. I, yeah. I always thought that um, it, one of the things that English celebrities were called upon to do was to pretend that they lacked confidence or lacked conviction. I remember Hugh Grant always made a big show of pretending that he had never intended to be a movie star and he was very surprised that it happened to him. He's probably telling the truth. Do you think so? I do think so. I if he I think I'd love to I, there's so many documentaries I want to see that are about really weird stuff. Mm-hmm. Like for instance that just that the difference between what is a real confidence and what is an act? It's um, to me that's really that's so the it's so like microscopic. You know, it's it's really the detail is uh, sorry the 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 crux of the anything's really in the sort of detail of those differences, and it's the difference between looking at someone who's dead and someone who's asleep. You're like, there's just some difference to it. Very subtle. Oof. I don't know if you have children. I've got an eleven-month-old baby, and I, I, I need to get out the mirror to be able to tell the difference. You want you, you can't wait for them to oh go to sleep, God. and then they finally don't do, even, and you're like, you know, when I, I've watched Matt <laughs> when he, when he was young, yeah. and I'd look at him and I'd go, he looks like a dead baby. Yeah, he looks like, and 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 you'd have all these horrible, uh, I know, feelings going. Maybe it's maybe he is going to be a dead baby. <laughs> I, I know, and I'm and I'm staring at it's like the universe going. This is where you better get used to. <laughs> yeah, this is this is your life now. Oh my god! So I'm curious to know. I love this sort of dumb stuff. Yes. So so Glastonbury '99 happens, and you're really pure overnight sensations. What what is the the first feeling that you are getting sucked into a machine that you don't have the total control of your life that you're used to, and um, that maybe this isn't going to be something you're totally going to love 100 percent of the time. Good question. I, it wasn't long. I bet. Didn't take long. I bet it didn't. Um, people start treating you different. People start treating you weird. Like Strangers or people you know? Both. Mm. And um, not not really good friends. That, 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 w- that would never happen. But maybe people who are in your sort of one degree of separation acquaintances or people who work with you or. I don't know, you say something and someone's like, ah, that's <laughs> so funny. Or yeah. you're like, that wasn't that. But, he, but there's reacting in a kind of weird way to me now. Oh no, what's happening? And uh, so that's one thing. Um, I remember the fact of looking at my, so you got these little stapled together in the days before smartphones. 
your schedule, your calendar, mm. and looking at it, and there's literally no days off for six months. Like, not one, not even Sundays and Saturdays. You had no days off. It was just constant promotion. And when you have a hit, it just doesn't, like, when the record companies get wind of it, like, when we brought out the man who, we delivered it both to our record company in the UK, who were like, this is amazing, let's run with it. And to our record company in America, Epic, who were like, this is disgraceful. We're not, we're not putting this out. It's, it's just ultra miserable music because they just didn't get it. Didn't. It's, it's utterly insane to me that they wouldn't have at least thought we've got a chance to ride the coattails of Wonderwall and what have you. Ridiculous. But it's business. And mm. so never, for, for, for my whole career, I've, I've understood what I'm dealing with, what I was getting into. So that didn't bother me. It was like, oh, well. But so, but when it suddenly blew up in Britain, every Australia, America, Canada, Asia, Europe, every everything that was Sony and Epic all over the planet just went ping, 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 ping. We can sell records, so we just promoted for eighteen months, and at round about three quarters of the way through, I remember just sitting in my mum's flat in Glasgow, and just like not being able to. Um, I, I think I was ta- I talked to my mum like she was uh, interviewing me and I just broke down and started crying like oh my god what's happening to my brain because doing interviews makes your brain move in a certain way being creative makes your, mo- your brain move in another way if you have to say the same thing again and again and again because people are asking you the same thing again and again of course and uh, I had a complete like I remember my mum and my, my girlfriend like just kind of patting me in the back going it's okay and it, and it was it, it got better but this it, we rolled into the invisible band which we recorded in ocean way on sunset here with nigel um but we didn't break we didn't stop we should have stopped and we rolled right into it went into the invisible band the third album and at the end of that our drummer broke his neck mm-hmm. and it was like it was like a something had to go and give and it was him and but he's fine he, he yes right yeah but uh it really does i'm amazed you know i think you really have to be built a certain you have to be a certain type of person and people say oh it's a a personality it's it's not that's 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 giving it that's making it sound like it's a good thing you can you need to be mentally something going on there right to be able to cope with that amount of um scrutiny yeah um i was saying like we got to the top of mount everest with our band and very few bands do and when you do get up there there's nobody there it's barren and there's you know there's very thin air and you can't stay up there long you got to come back down to earth mm-hmm. and uh at the moment, I was joking that you know you've got you get up there now and there's like Bono and Chris Martin playing tennis and a pair of shorts and a wee skinny t-shirt, and they're they do well up there. They're built for it. Certain people are. Yeah, they can cope with it, and I, and they can't cope with life on the ground. They're they're. I think you know many many years ago they probably would be in a sanitarium or something. Mm-hmm. Is it is that a sanitarium? Is that what you call a madhouse? Uh yeah, sanitarium. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes I'd I'd quite like to be in one myself, but 
I'm, but some would be there more than others because yeah. they're just so like amped up as people and they just fit on the top of Mount Everest totally fine. I don't. Right. <laughs> I like to be on the ground. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm sure you've seen there's the Radiohead documentary years and years ago. Mean where people is easy. Yeah, it? where the, I, they just ask, I forget who it was from the band, just like, it, and it's because it's the most banal mundane question imaginable. They say like, did you expect this album to be so successful? And because the poor guy doesn't slip into a can dancer, because he actually does try to reach into his brain and say something kind of novel, yeah. he starts he starts to cry. Yeah, And you feel very... I think even the person who, you know, the most money for nothing person who thinks that being a rock star isn't a job would understand that they, they at that point they've made a pretty good case that this is uh, supposedly pink. They say in that documentary, I think that Pink Floyd at one point had made a similar documentary and had decided not to release it uh-huh. because of what an awful picture. We made a documentary. Uh-huh. I'm talking made, about the, the 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 more recent one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We made I want to talk one, to you about this. I made, I made one about our band because I think it's good to do. It's good to leave it in your wake. Because it's telly, it's something that people can see mm. um, to understand maybe what this band is all about, um, and it's in the tra- very much in the tradition of of like I was trying to think like do you because that's a good I liked the angle of of um, meeting people is easy, just the just the the way they were about it, just measurable, and it's so they they tick that box, they've done that, and then music documentaries are all just. I think a little bit old hat. So we wanted to make something a little bit more exciting and interesting. So I invited a journalist to come with us who didn't like the band. I thought, what, what, that'd be quite interesting. And who's going to ever do that? No one's going to, no, no band's ever going to invite an enemy into the, um, but we did. And it's, it's really funny. It's what was really the good. nature of his objection to Travis's existence? He well here the the nature is this <clears throat> Travis sold three point five million albums and we did it without the permission of the guards of culture the journalists NME panned the album right everyone panned the album oh that's got to feel great and then six months later they had to give us awards <laughs> so we'd gone round them we'd gone round them we didn't do it we didn't do it it just happened yeah. like radio played it and people heard it and that moment happened with Glastonbury and. <laughs> And then suddenly, all those millions of people are 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 like um, going whoa whoa whoa. And then if the guys that the journalists they're like oh, now we really hate them. And that's where that came from. And a lot of these guys never even bothered looking. And so lower down, I guess, journalists like this guy. He's not lower down, but there's senior guys. And they're like, they're shit. Fuck them. Can I swear? Yeah, please. Yeah, he's like, you know, like they're you know shit sandwich kind of thing. You know, they're just the worst band. And other journalists would just go, yeah, yeah. It's like prefects. They received wisdom. Received wisdom. Yeah. And um, and trying to think now, who were the darlings at that time? It's not like badly drawn boy. You know, we had it was a weird time in music because Britpop was like. I always felt like Travis turned up right at the end of Britpop. Like it was, if it was a party, we turned up and it's kind of coming to the end. Yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. We went into the toilet and when we came out, everyone had gone. And it was just us in that place. And, there was, and that's why we probably sold so many records because 
we're the only ones left. Nature abhors a vacuum. Yeah. Right. And uh, um, so that, yeah, that's kind of the, that was the atmosphere we arrived in. And and there was nothing. There yeah. was, you know, you'd have Britney Spears on one side, Limp Biscuit on the other side. Yeah, the Venga bus was coming around then. Yeah. <laughs> there was nothing. And um, and so, yeah, we, we, we just kind of, we were just that band at that time. And um, we got a little bit of luft in our, in our sails. And like every artist, whether you're huge or, or, or not, everyone is looking for that little gust of wind. Of and course. There's, like there's one gust per year and you, you, no one knows who's going to get it. That's why I kind of like democracy of the music business because you've got massive artists who have <clears throat> who invest millions and millions of dollars building a giant wind machine for their careers and then they switch it on and it, it and then some guy comes along and gets the real gust you know the 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 sacred gust of wind that comes from well, who knows yeah and you that's free that's the, you can't and that's the one that you that you want oh, that's the one everyone wants that's the nirvana one yeah and and we got that <clears throat> you get one person gets it a year and we got it that year and it, and when it touches you it really does feel like i remember thinking fuck i could like um i could be like you know the beginning of harold lloyd where he's trying to commit suicide and he steps in front of a train and it just avoids him at the last <laughs> second he jumps off the bridge into mm-hmm. the water and it goes up to his ankles yeah i felt like a bit like that you couldn't lose you could not put a foot wrong it's kind of felt like some weird was happening and um so yeah, it was a weird, weird time, but good. Did the journalist that you made the documentary with, did he come around after spending a bunch of time with you? He did. He realized what it was. He realized that, you know, actually that Travis had two of our songs had soundtrack very important parts of his life. That's what I'm saying, man. And and yet, mm-hmm. he still deferred to the prefects their shit just because he didn't want to speak out and go you know what they're 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 all right you know there's what's why are they why are you saying their shit and the only reason why they're saying we're shit i think is because we got massive and we just got yeah without their permission maybe it's a personality type i go back and i can see i thought that i only recently became a snob but i think even as a child my first favorite <laughs> album was invisible touch by genesis which had like five big singles off it and i managed to fall in love with one of the album tracks so just yeah. from the start there was something to having a song that was all mine yeah that made and it yeah. lost all of its power if all of a sudden everybody else liked it yeah. and it's not Maybe there's some strains of being misanthropic in there or something, but honestly, in my heart, it doesn't feel that way. You're absolutely and I think right. that when a song, I, I've never liked classic rock, almost mm-hmm. any classic rock, because when it came to me, it it was it it, it, it I don't it's Led, personal. Led Zeppelin didn't ask the corporate whatever. Maybe they did. I don't know. But by the time Stairway to Heaven came to me, it may as well have been a commercial for a Snickers bar. Yeah. And that's nobody's fault. That's that's the intersection of art and, and commerce. But I think it yeah. was for people like myself, it was hard. No, I was open to things because I was in England and it mm-hmm. was fun to be a part of the yeah. zeitgeist. Like I said, I went to the dumb millennium dome. But uh-huh. I can see where for other people, the very ubiquity of yeah. the band made it a turn off and you have no control over that. Yeah. You, know, you know that. You become, you, you just become Rice Krispies. Yeah. You just are, are, are something that's like 
but over here, like I said, mm-hmm. it never did that. So we became, I, I still have weird um, cross paths with musicians from the coolest bands. Like really, like there was some girl, I think from the Dirty Projectors one mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. Just talking in a, in a flat. I didn't even know who she was. But I was like, oh, that's, I'm in a band. And she's like, oh, what band are you in? And I was like, Travis. And she took, she took a beamer. She took, her face went bright red. Mm-hmm. And she's like, what? You're, you're in. And I'm like, and I got embarrassed. And so we're suddenly in this <laughs> thing of like, and, and um, because we were the only band at the time in America, it would seem anyway, from what I've been told, that people could have as their own little island to climb onto to get away from Brittany, to get away from Limp Biscuit and Fred Durst. And and it was just us. It was before Coldplay, it was before before Pitchfork, before indie music had become ubiquitous itself. Yeah. Yeah, it was before the garage rock thing. You've mentioned Coldplay a couple of times. I, I have to know, what did you think the first time you heard Yellow? I gave them their first ever play in the United States on the with Nick Harcourt. Mm-hmm. He's he's like it was one of those come in DJ. Yeah, sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. And um, I was like, oh, there's this band. Mm-hmm. And they have written, they're going to be huge. They're mm-hmm. going to be, they've written it because everyone needs the big American hit. And they've written it. And here it is. And it was yellow. Yeah. And um, and, and it, it, was, it was like, that was, they're just a different ballgame completely. Well, he may be wired differently than you. You didn't feel like they had borrowed your blueprint to write that song. That, to me, seemed like it could have been a Travis song. What, Yellow? Mm-hmm. No. You've never heard this theory before? Well, I, I can, no, I, the thing is, I can, I can see how, what Chris does, he's more of a designer than an artist. He's like, and he's told me himself. And he goes, what you look at is what's, what's, what's big and happening right now and he'll take something of it and he'll incorporate it into the thing to bring his to make his wallpaper fit with the zeitgeist wallpaper and um so that's why like he they looked like us i remember walking past a newsstand in london and i was like oh we're on the cover oh it's not us i really thought it was us i had to look twice Mm -hmm he sort of shapeshifted into us because we were the biggest band in Britain and he was like that's how you you consume and then you 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 like that's like invasion of the body snatchers or yeah. something you're saying this in a much more positive way because people could have a much more negative take on all the things that you're saying well here's the thing you you need to look look at it and because we've been compared to Coldplay a lot if, and going beyond that, I remember they went through their U2 phase. Yes. Then they went their Arcade Fire phase. Yes. With the, oh, uh, like, uh, mm-hmm. what's the what's that big song, the big Arcade Fire song? That, uh, it's, one of the, it's not one of the neighborhoods, uh, is it? The big chanty one. Is uh, it one of the one's neighborhoods from yeah, the? Yeah. Yes. Like, uh, number nine, number 11, who knows? The big one. Yeah, 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 yeah. The, the, the everyone plays before the gig starts or whatever. Yeah. Um, and then you got their, whoa, whoa, whoa. yeah. They, so they grab, and then the last record was was they'd gone into sort of Avicii territory with the dance thing. Yeah, that's I th- personally think that's smart because Chris 
is a great songwriter. He's a great melodicist, and he he writes really good songs. But he also understands the business. He had never understood it. Me, <laughs> I don't get that. I I just can't do that. I'm like again. I'm your postman. I'm not like you'll not find me up the top of Mount Everest playing tennis in my yep. underpants. Well, on the bright side, you uh, spared yourself both a, <laughs> a, a conscious coupling and uncoupling with Gwyneth Paltrow, I guess. Gwyneth's lovely. Oh, you've she, met her. Oh yeah, we, talented yeah, she's, singer. She's great. She's um, actually a very good singer. Gwyneth is just one of these women that you're just like, oh my god, she's just she's just a really great human, and. Wow, you know he's he's had children with her. Mm-hmm. He's a very lucky man. Yes. I'm a lucky man too. Mm-hmm. But we're both very lucky men. In each your own way. Um, <clears throat> and uh, I'm sure you told the story a million times. But what is the story you made Liam Gallagher cry? Oh right, yeah. Well, we were just on tour with Oasis, and he made me. Well, I was walking past his backstage in in a, in a venue, and they had little sort of mobile caravan type things and I walked past his one and look, just happened to glance in and he was sitting on the sofa just looking out and he's, he went hey yo and I stopped and he, he's like come here and I walked into his room he seems like somebody who could be around somebody for a very long time without learning their first name <laughs> yeah <laughs> well, he, he's quite intimidating yeah when you first meet him but we like we did a lot of tours with him, and Liam is the oh, he's he's a he's a mensch. He's a brilliant guy, but he plays on it a lot, and he and he's got good humor with it. So he's like sit down, and he points to a guitar beside me, and he's like, "Do a song." I'm like, oh, God. I, 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 so I did a song. So I picked up the guitar and I sung a song we hadn't recorded yet called love played it i just had my head down the whole time and and at the end of it i looked up and he was crying i was i was sitting in the silence that after and he he wiped a tear from his eye and he's like you are weird and that was that was the end of it and i I was like can i go now and he's like "Ah, fuck off (laughs) like yeah okay so it was a real there's a real Emotional core inside that man. Oh, he, he, look, Liam is one of the most sensitive, emotional people I ever met. He's funny and he's just, he's raw. Again, it's like there's the confidence to be who he is. Mm-hmm. And he, he's like no prisoners. And he's very, very fast, quick-witted. His brothers as well, both of them are very, they had to be. Yeah. They had such an abusive childhood, both of them. No more than Liam, I think, because he was the first. The, he's the eldest. Um, no, Noel's the eldest. Noel's the eldest. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah. he was the he got the most abuse. Yes, Liam right. kind of still, you know, they they still got very badly abused. So they had to learn to think on their feet. Now, when you listen to those early songs and look at Liam and look at them, you you go, "This is the real deal." You're getting real. It's they don't. They don't even move on stage. No. There's something so weighty about it. It's amazing. It, it, and I'm sure you understand from a musical point of view, you take a song like Supersonic, if I want to like try to turn somebody on to them, there's this great live recording. And I love is on one of the singles and he goes, this is going to be the single. So go out and buy it. 
So you know that they are catching like this is uh that you're talking about the, the tipping point. This yeah. is the moment you yeah. haven't you've recorded it. You haven't released it. And I don't <laughs> know if I play it for you, you'll either go. That is one of the most incredible things I've ever heard. Mm-hmm. Or you will say that's uh, that's an F flat minor. <laughs> There's really not much going on there because you either just feel what that boom pop boom boom pop is or you don't. And it takes confidence to not think I need to dress this thing up because of the the sheer simplicity of it is what makes it so incredibly powerful. It, it came a time, they came at a time where it, they were like, there was, there was, they were just, they're so, I saw them play their, their pivotal show and it was in, because they got a record deal in Glasgow. That's where they got signed, which mm. is where I'm from. Yeah. And, um, pardon me. Um, they, um, they came back a year later and headlined, or well, they didn't even headline. They were playing like four or five in the afternoon, maybe six, at a tent at uh, the big festival, Tea in the Park, mm-hmm. which is um, the big festival in Scotland. And uh, it was rammed, and they were. It was just that feeling like you're seeing this is the beginning. This is right in the, is it's exploding, and um, and it was such a good gig. They they were he was singing great. They played great. The simplicity was, um, very. It's just super disarming, and it was like a, like a mass. Everyone knew the songs. Everyone singing along and, and the, they they changed a lot in Britain because it was all about the song they brought the song back mm-hmm. they brought this hymnal thing back into into uh, into music and so we got a wee bit of that yeah I could definitely mm-hmm. I can definitely see that um, I, I, I've already kept you too long and uh, I gotta let you go it's really cool. been a pleasure to get to talk to you a little bit lovely to be here um, the 20th anniversary re-release of Travis's The Man Who album is out now, plus the uh, the live set we've been talking about, Glastonbury, 1999. You are at Fran Healy, at Travis the Band, for all of your Twittering needs. Mm-hmm. Thanks again. Uh, more to come on The Tully Show. Keep it here on Faction Talk. Thanks, man. Yeah. Welcome back to The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. My next guest worked as the executive producer of the Oprah Winfrey Show before joining Oprah at the OWN Network. Now she has written a book entitled The Beautiful No and Other Tales of Trial, Transcendence, and Transformation. Hello and welcome, Sherry Salata. Yay! Hello, hello. Are you becoming accustomed to being the person who is on the spot and actually having to... You're not on camera, but but you're, you're still on microphone. And did you ever aspire to be... No, I did not. Uh-huh. I did not. But here's what's helped me. Yeah. What, what, this really helped me. To do my own podcast for the last 18 months mm-hmm. has kind of gotten me over the weirdness. Right. Um, and it's strange we d- to hear your own voice yeah, anymore. Yeah, it's totally weird. You don't like it. You, you think you sound terrible. And mm-hmm. and then I was on a little reality show called Season 25, Oprah Behind the Scenes. Right. The last year of the Oprah show. So those things kind of just helped not make it quite so strange. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Did you have to, did you go to like a stylist for that kind of thing? What do you mean for being on a show with Oprah? Like I feel like 
No. It's a weird okay because it's like a weird thing to, to. I'm finding this out being like at the fringes of. I'm at like at the. I'm at like the the outskirts of entertainment here yes. on, on radio. It's weird to go. Okay, well, I'm like a public personality. I should yes. actually think about what clothes I wear and not just shop at outlets right. anymore. But on the other hand, it's tough to actually. It, it's tough if you make that leap. But if you don't, they're going to be the people going. You're on television. There's something wrong with you that you didn't think about that. I know. Well, listen, no, I didn't, and I'm still not good at it. And right now, Mm -hmm. what you are seeing, I'm in my book tour uniform, my my Cynthia Raleigh dress, Uh and my friends are like, geez, Sherry, can't you find something else to wear? And I'm like, but it's comfortable. I know what's going, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, I'm, I'm not a big style maven. So that's, yeah. that's going to always be a bit of an Achilles heel for me. Uniforms, I'm told, are the mark of that's, a highly accomplished person. If it was good right. enough for Barack Obama and Steve Jobs, it should be, right. should be good enough for us as well. Right. I, I'm usually wearing a black American apparel t-shirt. I <laughs> knew you were coming by today. I you look I, a little fancy. I thought I'd throw on a button yeah. down. So before we talk about where you are now, let's talk a little bit about how you, you know, where you came from. Yeah. You started you started freelance in the mid 90s with the Oprah show. That's a tremendous foot in the door. Oh, for sure. I mean, listen, I mean, on on on, on one hand, I was 35 years old starting over again from for the how manyth time. Mm-hmm. I was and I was getting a shot at an entry level position because promo producing was really kind of entry level at the show. And um, I, I literally was down to my last dollar and, and really quite despondent. And so, so it's a good, it's good news for everybody that, you know, it's never too late to mm-hmm. live the life of your dreams. And That's uh, good. I can, I can relate to that. I yeah. wanted to be in entertainment and I was in my late twenties and I was still waiting tables Yeah, and you definitely start to think, well, there's some people who just end up waiting tables forever. It's for not sure. in the cards for just because you never let go of your dream doesn't mean your dream ever comes true. <laughs> right. Right. But here's the one thing. I made so many mistakes. I mean, so many mistakes one after another. But if, if I had to give myself, I look back and I give myself this one like good for you, girl. I was willing to once I knew it was the wrong thing, I was willing to start over mm-hmm. as many times as it took. Okay. And then in the space of 10 years, you go from, you're saying you're making promo, so that's like coming 15. Up. Okay, 15. I think it's 15, yeah. It, I thought you, it seems like you get there in 95, 96 Yes, 95. And you're and the then executive producer in 06? The last five years, yes. Okay. Okay, do the math, Sherry. In, in, in yes. the space <laughs> yes. in the space of a relatively right. short amount that's of time, you're the- 10 years, you're the yeah. ex- First of all, because I know that as many times I've oh asked people the answer to this question, it's not always the same, the same answer. Um, what does executive producing that show actually mean? Yeah. Well, um, you know, lucky for me, I, I learned from the best. And I got a chance to watch a couple of really fabulous, tremendously talent and very different from each other executive producers before I was um, unceremoniously tossed into that chair. Um, it's, you know, you, you basically in, in our world and and it's different in some worlds. I, you know, I was in charge of the show. So I was in charge of all the producers, the teams. I w- it was my job to make sure that we delivered 140, 150 hours of Oprah certified television and that Oprah's vision was manifested. 
okay, that is an answer, but like, what did you do on a day to day? Oh basis? yeah, it was just me. Was, you know, I was I, we we taped two shows a day, uh-huh. so and that would usually we 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 would tape for an hour, uh, sometimes longer than Oprah always wanted to sit and talk to the audience for another how, half hour afterwards, and then that would be so I'd I'd lived a full life, a full day by ten thirty in the morning. Yeah. Then I'd run back up to my office, mm-hmm. do meet with HR, legal, you know, all those other meetings. And then we'd get ready to do another show yeah. for an hour and a half, two hours. And then uh, at 4.30, maybe, we would start pre-show meetings for the next day's tapings with Oprah. And then when that was over, you know, we would meet with Oprah and talk about next week and next month. And what are we going to do the rest of the season? So they were they were very long, jam-packed days. Sounds like, and you're doing a lot of things big and small. Yeah. And then can you describe the corporate culture inside of there? I want to believe, I think most of us want to believe that it's about as perfect uh, a working environment as people could ever right. hope for. We've all, I mean, we're all old enough to remember a time when work was an unpleasant place where people would just yell and scream at you. Not to say that we all had those jobs, right. but we knew that that was a real thing. Right. I'm inclined to think that this was a place where people were treated as human beings and encouraged to become their best selves, thereby having even more to contribute to the overall enterprise. What was it like being inside of the belly of that beast? Well, here's where being 35 years old and starting there comes in handy because I'd had a lot of other experiences. So, of course, nothing's perfect. It's a pressure cooker. It was the number one show in the world practically. So it was it was a pressure cooker. There was tons of competition. Um, a lot of people tired and stressed. And, you know, you felt like, you know, people say, well, it's not brain surgery. Well, it felt like brain surgery to us, yeah. like the level of responsibility and commitment we all had. There's lots of jobs that are super hard that aren't brain surgery. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And it was it was it was it was crazy business. And but at the same time, what I would say is I'd had enough experience. So I was like, listen, this is heaven. This is heaven. The opportunities, like, you know, we're being paid to build a spiritual life. Mm-hmm. We're being paid to raise our emotional IQ. Um, you know, one day it's, you know, Tom Hanks. The next day it's Eckhart Tolle. The next day it's a, a book of fiction. It was, um, I knew, I knew every day of it that nothing of its like would ever come again. I'm glad you were able to, and I think coming to it late in life, I think you you, you oh, correctly identified that. Oh, for sure. If I would have been 21, I would have taken it for granted like anybody would. Right. Hey, did anybody ever try to uh, 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 bribe you or do anything untoward to get things on the air? We all know that, you know, there are authors whose careers were made, et cetera, et cetera. Ah, right. uh, bribe. I don't think so. I mean, I would, you know, I, I, I was not open for business for anything of course, untoward. Well, of course you weren't, you know. But... But here's what I would say, mm-hmm. what that the impact that it had on my life, and certainly as I got more senior in the organization at the show, that I, I, I almost had to erect a barrier around myself because what had happened when this woman named Oprah had become a world icon and a billionaire in the blink of an eye, and that makes people a little crazy. You know, it's like if you're sitting next next to me in line in a grocery store, standing next to me in a grocery store, and if there's any way you can get your cousin's screenplay or this or that to me, they might have that one breakthrough that they think Oprah could deliver for them. Mm-hmm. So that got a little that got a little nutty, and sometimes I just felt like, eh, better just to stay home, put my head down, and work. 
Got you, got you. And so that's what almost kind of brings us to what you're here to talk about today. I, I do have to ask you one more question. Just Oprah the human being. Yeah. What is one thing that is different about Oprah the person than you think the public opinion of her or conception realizes? Well, I always found Oprah, and, and I used to say this to her all the time, nobody knows how funny you are. Uh-huh. She's funny. She's like hilariously funny. Not just like a good laugher at other people's funnies. She's pretty funny. and. uh and I, I, I spent as much time laughing as I did in the ugly cry, you know, uh-huh. at the show, behind okay. the scenes. So at what point do you realize uh, professionally, personally, that you, you need a change? Yeah, well, it gets really clear. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and, and when, when things are time, when something's time to be over, um, you, you get a chance to look at your life mm-hmm. and... Uh, what I could see very clearly was I had a dream come true career, but not a dream come true life. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was absolutely time to leave OWN. And um, I left with wind beneath my wings. I heard you say, I think on, uh, I saw you interviewed on the Today Show that you yeah. were using um, being busy with work as an excuse to neglect your life. And oh, for I, years. I, I have seen that. I don't want to say. Well, yeah, I'll say it in this organization, a number of people who, you know, it's it's very easy to say, but I've seen it all over the place. It, it, it's, um, it's a socially acceptable way to neglect your personal life. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it sure is. And it's a great excuse. I mean, you know, uh, she's so busy was came. How's Sherry? She's so busy. How, what's she doing? She's so busy. Um, and I and I use that like we all can do defaulting to the things that are easier for us. Mm-hmm. Not that working that much is easy, but it was easy to excel. It was easy to accomplish. Um, uh, you know, like for other women, it might be they feel like it's, it's, it's easy for them to do the momming thing, that they're so good at it. And, and so then they kind of push the rest of their lives and, and their creative pursuits off to the side because they haven't had as much success. It's really the same kind of thing. Right. When you lean into like, here's my validation, here's my accomplishment, and never mind about all this other stuff that isn't going so well. So what was it that you felt like you were missing personally? Well, I mean, I, I you know, honestly, I, what I did know um and it wasn't at an unconscious level, I just chose to ignore it, was the first thing I really had to do was take a really strong, hard look at, like, health and wellness, mm-hmm. like how I was living, um, you know, my and, and, and sure enough, the, the results came in and my adrenals were shot and, you know, I just hadn't taken care of myself consistently for a long time. I had all the information, but I hadn't rooted it in my life and in my bones. And, you know, my love life was, was non-existent. Um, you know, it, it would be like, I, I would, I would have a relationship and it didn't you know, work out or, you know, it wasn't a, a very satisfying situation. And it'd be like, well, I've got this great job. So it was, it probably wasn't right, you until always have that safe space to go back to. I had this whole space. I created this space to do a, a real reckoning and say, you might be in the middle of your life, and if you're in the middle of the li- your life, what are you doing with the rest of it? Yeah. I love that question. I've been giving that a lot of thought. I have to think a lot of people who are listening to this have, and if they haven't, they probably will at some point. I've been staring at a book on my nightstand. Uh, it's uh, called Midlife by someone named Kieran Setia. Mm. Can't tell you anything about it. I still haven't <laughs> opened it up yet. But it's an amazing question when you 
what are we supposed to do with, let's say, 40 years? Yeah. It's quite a lot of time. Obviously, none of us knows how much time we have. But what is the the meaning of that? I'm personally, you know, there are lots of things I've wanted to accomplish, and I've got kids now. I'm, I think, happily married. I mean, I am. I'm assuming my wife feels the same way. I've got a, a job that I'm I'm happy with. I always hear sports teams say it's more fun to try to build to the championship than to try to defend the championship right. the next year. And, and uh, yeah, how how are you supposed to stay motivated? That's a really, really big question. I think all of us need to grapple with that. You're not just going to go 35 years and then go fish for five or whatever, right. you know, and then just go to the old folks home. What answers do you find yourself coming up with for giving that second half of life right. as much meaning as the first half had? Well, I mean, that that is, this is the moment. This is the moment. This is the decision. The decision is, can I make each day going forward, even more glorious than the glory days that are behind me. And for some of us, we don't think we've even hit our glory days yet. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like, okay, here I am. While the clock is ticking, certainly, and we only are promised the day we wake up in, what happens if we do have 30 or 40 more years? And, you know, begin, you know, beginning to really look at different areas of your life and figuring out what are your dreams now? That's been an interesting thing for me. You know, I'm like, James, you know, I've been in the dream making business and I'm like, okay, what are your dreams right now, Sherry, in all the areas of your life? And they're not the same dreams as I had 10 years ago or even 20 years ago. And I think that beginning, that paying attention, that kind of listening um, to, to what my own heart is seeking has been very, very interesting. And it's resulted in a move. A geographic relocation. Um, from where to where? From Los Angeles to Napa Valley. Okay. That sounds about right. And uh, yeah. And, and you know, it's, it's, it was a big move for me because I've been, lived in a big city for the last 30, 40 years of my life. Mm-hmm. And already I can see, oh, this is where my heart's calling me. I'm, I'm you know, now this is going to sound like retirement stuff, gardening, but I am, I am growing my own crops, my friend. Good. And I'm gonna, no, I'm it's not. Growing it's, my own salad. It's not retirement stuff. That I no. mean, I feel that way personally about Los Angeles. It's like I came here with things I wanted to accomplish. Yeah. I, I always felt like it, it's this perfect visual metaphor. There's that sign up on the hill. Yeah. And we all come here and we're all trying to just like, it's like that, uh, that thing at a, a carnival. You want to run up and hit the thing on top and yes. make the buzzer go off, yes. you know? Yeah. But. Man, the traffic's awful here. It's very dirty. <laughs> and if I'm if I'm no longer driven by that that goal, then I don't know what this place has to offer. And again, it doesn't have to be about, well, I did it, so now let me just go yes. sit on a couch somewhere. It's right. about what is what is What's the next, next? thing how that I want. How can you build yeah. on it? What else? And what how else, can you appreciate the simple things like eating your own vegetables? Yes, exactly. And you can dip dip in and in, in, in out of city life. So that's the beginning of that for me. Um, calling in, manifesting my soulmate partner. That'll be the next piece of it. Mm-hmm. But um, Wait, no. What did you just say? You said a lot of Oprah words. Manifesting my soulmate <laughs> partner, my soulmate man. Uh-huh. Um, like and and being, how, what's like the process of that? The, the, the barriers are down. Okay. You know, like mm-hmm. that was also like a yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks so much. Or um, I, I, I'm never online dating, so there will be none of that process. I respect that. I, I, see, I see enough of my friends doing that. That looks really quite horrid. 
Yeah, and Absolutely. I guess so much of it really does come down to your your mindset. I'm really fond of a quote that I heard from Sarah Silverman. I, I don't know if she made it up or not, but you don't get what you want. You get what you believe you deserve. Yes. And there's something really amazing about when you walk into a room yeah. knowing that you deserve to be with yes. somebody that you deserve to be That's with. That's great. Or a job that right. you just, that you, uh, I'm not into auras and stuff like that, but it doesn't have to be about an aura. You project that confidence and people read that on a really basic level. Well, there is a really interesting idea and an idea that even on this book tour has come to the forefront. I wrote about it a little bit. I I had seen this Instagram post that, you know, it was a little Oprah like love yourself first, love yourself most posted by the infamous marketing madman, Gary Vee. And I, right, right, right. and I know him. He's an old friend. Uh-huh. So I looked at it and I was like, it just stopped me cold. And I honestly, I will tell you, I, I, I've been from city to city with these groups of women. And I talk about that post because I'm so, it's like a crystal. I'm turning around in my hand and looking at all the facets because there's something about the solution to everything we seek is in those three words, love yourself most. It's almost like your your love life solved, your um, taking care of yourself is solved, your all of your relationships are solved, career is solved, because somewhere in there, n- nobody has to do anything for you or be anything for you, for you to feel loved or lovable or successful or good enough or worthy. And those are probably the last little remnants of a of an excavation that I still have yet to complete. It's just like there's something in those three words that have almost become like a a superpower mantra. Mm -hmm. And I'm still I'm still unraveling it a little bit. I think it's powerful. It's amazing to me how many people and um, I feel like it's possible maybe more uh, women than than men, you know, don't fully love themselves, don't fully see their, their self-worth. And, and it, 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 what a goddamn shame. I don't know how so many people, yeah. a lot of people, it obviously was, it wasn't their decision to feel that way. And it wasn't even necessarily the people who put it on them's decision for them to feel right. that way. It was all these awful accidents that happened along the way. But it, it sounds trite, but you're the only you that you've right, which got. which is why it's like, wake up. Yeah. Wake up. Mm-hmm. If, you, if, you ha- if you haven't cleared that out, wake up. Yeah. So what is the beautiful no? The beautiful no, the title story of the book is actually the story about how I did get the the entry level job at the Oprah show and what had happened right before that day I walked in, I walked into the land of Oz um, at 35 years old, I had gotten a devastating rejection. Um, I was up for a big job as an ad agency producer, a senior job, tons of money, and it, I had nailed the interview. The The guy who was interviewing me all but hired me in the room. And then I went home to wait for the call, finalizing the details. And of course, it never came. And then the letter comes from HR. Sorry, we're not hiring at this time. And it really was, it was so heartbreaking that I, I literally took to my couch. And, and something energetically happened there. It was like I opened my hands and I was like, well, I don't even know what to do now. Because at 35 years old, I I felt like a failure. I'm like, well, I'm creative. I feel like this is what I'm supposed to be doing producing. But, you know, I I guess, you know, I, I can't support myself. And then, you know, a short time later comes the magical message on my answering machine. Hey, are you free to come in and freelance? And what I realized, not right then, but several years later, when I was well on the Oprah path, that had I gotten that big job, 
Not in a million years would I have quit it a short time later and given up the salary and the benefits and the security to take a shot at a dream at the Oprah show. And so how do you see that as a larger life lesson for yourself and others? it's, It's a foundational spiritual principle for me now, which is and, and here's what I work toward. Collapse the time between the no or the disappointment or the betrayal or the rejection and my realizing that, hey, everything's working out for me. I'm getting guided by mystical forces. You know, I'm putting it out there what my dreams are. I'm getting helped and help and guidance from mystical forces. And the universe really is guiding me and leading me to the next right thing. And when I when I stay clear on that, it is impossible to be devastated. You feel like the universe has a plan for everybody? I think we have a plan that that somewhere we're co-creating. We're co-creating within in, in a quantum sense. And I don't think there's something outside myself that has a plan for me. I feel like I'm I'm quantumly in concert with um the force capital yeah. f i get that yeah i think i think i like that uh i just watched dr strange for the first time last night have you seen it <laughs> no okay because the whole thing is i mean i don't think i'm spoiling it at this point like he's got his phys- physical body and at any point he can kind of become his astral kind self of. and look down on himself yeah. and it's still him but obviously he's got a lot more objectivity when he's the floaty him looking down Things are much more magical and complex than than we can see. I hope you're right. I suspect it. I, I suspect I you am. might be. So you, is it fair to say that you aspire now to be a lifestyle guru? It's pretty much what you're doing. Right? No, guru. Don't you have pillars for people to follow? Guru. Well, listen, I, I have um, I have a, a great business with one of my best friends of 30 years, and we have a digital platform called ThePillarLife.com. But no, 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 no. Here's 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 what my takeaway is: having produced every expert known to man, that the real function of experts in our lives is to make themselves irrelevant and unnecessary. That. At the end of the day, we almost become the own, our own experts. I, I, I'm still, that's what I'm doing right now, becoming the expert on Sherry. So I'm doing that. We're doing the podcast, having these very conversations. Only thing I want to talk about mm-hmm. is, you know, how do we make our dreams come true? And how do we uplift one another? And, uh, but no, I have no interest. Uh, you know, I'll be my own guru. Okay. So what is one concrete step that you find that people can take to to start themselves because everybody can use right. a little bit of this just about for sure well i mean you know here here's my over my 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 bigger recommendation is to understand first of all that it's a personal recipe that just putting other people's programs on is is usually doomed to failure that it's a very personal recipe and that's kind of where you have to do a little bit of work a little bit of excavation a little bit of trying this and that but you know there there are some basic things and 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 don't go so big that that you set yourself up for failure it really is a couple more glasses of water a day sit down and listen to your breath for 3 to 5 minutes and just get a little bit more sleep start to do those things that that kind of that change your mood mm-hmm. that make you feel like like you're caring for yourself and and then just watch what happens you get a couple small victories and yeah, you start the ball sure. rolling and um i'm i'm guessing that you were in a position you know when when uh you you're done with own that you have a little bit more financial flexibility than some other people who might be reading your book yeah. would have what about somebody who's listening to this saying that's great but i'm 40 or 50 or whatever right. and and i work 60 hours a week right and I hear you, 
And here's what I say to myself anyway, that I could have still worked 60, 70, 80, 90 hours a week and and manifested the life of my dreams and taken better care of myself because it wasn't 24 hours a day. I was still smoking, downing the, the cheese pizzas. Uh, oh, when did you stop smoking? That's of like five years ago. Oh, good for you. Yeah. How about you? Uh, uh, boy, that's a tough question. I <laughs> I really smoked for about 10. Did you have and, a relapse? <laughs> yeah, I'm constantly relapsed. I really smoked for about 10, and then I really quit for about two. Yeah. And now I'm kind of like, uh, if I'm in a city by myself, like if, yeah. if my it's, wife it's is- It's a hard one. If my wife's in another city with the kids, I probably am having it's a couple a hard of days. Yeah, yeah. It's a hard one. I'm actually pretty good with where I'm at. I don't have oh, any- Oh, listen, I don't if I had one cigarette right now, I'd be right back. So that's, that's a very fierce addiction for me. I've, I quit five years ago. They're awful. And The um, worst. Yeah. It's it, it it really it, it's a slippery slope for me, but yeah. So it's the it's those little things. Yeah, and uh, one last question before I let you go, uh, Oprah for president. What would you what do you think? Oh my God, I don't wish that on her. <laughs> that, that looks like a terrible job, right? Did you see? I mean, the last time I saw um, a video of President Obama, my God, is he completely white and gray? I know. Did he, he was, age like he was 50 one of the young years? ones? I know. We're getting cheated with this guy. We don't get to see what's going on behind the makeup and the hair. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much for for coming by. You are at Sherry Salada on Twitter, and the book is called The Beautiful No and other tales of trial, transcendence, and transformation. Best of luck. Enjoy your book tour. Thank you.